This is the message portion of the service. Friends, this is when we open the scriptures and read them to each other and listen for what God is saying by the Holy Spirit to his church. So if you have your Bible, open it up. We're going to read from Mark chapter 11, verses 7 through 11. We'll put the words on the screen for you as well so you can follow along there. This is the story of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Mark 11, 7 through 11. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on him, and he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut in the fields. Then those who went ahead and those who, were, who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Then he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. May God add his, re his blessing to the reading and the understanding and the doing of his holy word. Hosanna! Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna means save us. People were shouting, save us, Lord. Save us. So they have a palm parade. And imagine some of the parades that you're familiar with, with fire trucks and uh, police officers and neat cars. And so this is a very simple parade. It's just Jesus and a crowd. And Jesus is the star of the palm parade. There's a sense of festivity. They're shouting and singing. The children are waving palm branches. The adults are welcoming their Savior, the one who will save them. But as with most everything that Jesus does, friends, I want you to notice there's another layer of meaning underneath what is obvious and transparent. This is not just a simple parade. It's also street theater. Uh, this is Jesus acting out his coronation as the new king. And so I want you to notice, when we say that Jesus is Savior, we're making a spiritual declaration. And when we say that Jesus is King, we're making a political declaration. We're saying not Caesar, but Jesus is King. And so Jesus is lampooning Caesar with uh, his parade. Because when Caesar has a parade, there are armies and there are chariots and there are horses. And Jesus is sort of mocking the way that earthly rulers grasp for power and for authority and for a sense of importance. Uh, because Jesus wants to show that there really is only one true king and it is not Caesar. So Jesus isn't riding a war horse. He's riding a donkey. Why a donkey? A donkey is a humble creature. It is a beast of burden. It is a servant. And that's what Jesus is, right? Jesus is a servant. Jesus is a humble king. Jesus is the one who will bear the burdens of the world on his shoulders, in his body, on the cross. And what people can't quite see is that while Jesus looks triumphant in the way that he enters the city, he's actually in sort of a way surrendering himself, right, over to the religious leaders, over to the Roman authorities, over to the Father's plan of salvation for the world. And I imagine Jesus, as he's riding in on the donkey, we don't know, but this is my imagination, I think he's got his hands out like this. And he's reaching out to the people and they want to touch him and they want to hold his hands and maybe they want to kiss his fingers. But this is also a gesture of surrender, right? This is saying, here I am. Here I am. You don't have to come and chase me down because I offer myself to you. And so Jesus is surrendering himself to what will unfold through the events 
of Holy Week. Friends, welcome to Holy Week. This is the week that we remember the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry and his life leading up to his cross and resurrection. And I'm so sorry that we can't be together in person for worship in the building, but I'm grateful that we can be together in spirit as we worship here on this beautiful day that the Lord has given us. Today's the last uh, last in our series. Uh, It's called Closer. And we're talking about how we can come closer to God through prayer, particularly during this time of quarantine, during this season of our lives, uh, when for some of us, the world has been turned upside down and we are missing our loved ones. And we, some of us are out of work or having to work from home. Uh, We are grieving the loss of proms and of graduations. We're grieving the loss of economic stability and of good health for people we care about. And so, friends, we need the Lord now more than ever. We need God near to us now more than ever. And so let me share with you again our key Bible verse for this series called Closer. It's from James chapter 4, verse 8, and it says, Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. So two of the best things that we can do as we go through this time together, one, wash our hands, and two, come near to God. And I want you to notice that when the Bible talks about washing hands, when the Bible talks about having clean hands, uh, it's speaking metaphorically. The Israelites used to wash their hands as a matter of ritual purification, uh, not only to have clean hands to eat, but to have clean hearts and to be right in right relationship with God. And it's the power of God's grace Uh, that like soap and water washes us, except not only on the outside, right, but also on the inside, to wash away our sin, to make us new again. Think baptism. Think about how we are washed of our sin in baptism. So friends, during this time, uh, wash your hands, and, and every time you wash your hands, let it be a spiritual experience. Spend some time praying, thanking God for what you have, for your blessings, to to keep you safe, to to wipe the coronavirus from the face of the earth. Pray for clean hands. Pray for a clean heart. I hope you're taking the time that God has given us to learn how to pray during this season. You know, I've noticed that when we get serious about learning how to pray, we discover an interesting progression. It begins with a struggle of wills. Have you noticed this? It's God's will versus our will. Whose will is going to be done in our lives? Is it our will or is it God's will? Who's in charge of our lives? Who calls the shots? Uh, Who sets the agenda? Is it us or is it Jesus? In the early days of our faith, we beg and we pout and we demand things from God. And God is sort of like a cosmic vending machine to us, right? And you push F three, and you get whatever thing it is that you want from God. And in the early days of our faith, our prayers are focused on instant solutions and on a kind of selfish manipulation. As Jesus comes into Jerusalem, he knows this about us, doesn't he? We're a fickle crowd because on Sunday we shout, Hosanna, save us, Jesus. But on Friday, we are the same ones who are yelling, crucify him. Jesus knows this about us, and notice, he he still welcomes our praise. He doesn't condemn the adulation of the people. He knows 
that our idea of salvation and, and his idea of salvation are different. But still, he loves us. Still, he loves the crowd, fickle as we are. You know, as we grow in faith, we come to understand these things. And when we come to realize our need for greater maturity in faith, I want to encourage you, don't despise the seasons of immaturity. Every stage of the journey is important, friends. Every stage of the journey is necessary. Think about it like this. Are children less mature than adults? Yes, of course they are. But childhood is an important season, isn't it? And so even selfish prayers are vital, a vital stage on the Christian journey. Because over time, we grow up in our prayers. They become less about us and more about Jesus. They become not only talking, but also listening. They become an opportunity for us to release our grip on our lives and let God have control. The prayer of Holy Week, friends, is the prayer of surrender. The prayer of letting go. Remember this image of Jesus coming into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey with his hands open, saying, Here I am. Here I am, God. Use me. We tend to think of holding on as one of the hardest things that there is for us to do as human beings. Uh, We hold on to a memory. We hold on to a loved one. We hold on to a job. We hold on to a feeling or some good attitude. But let me suggest to you that letting go is at least as hard as holding on. Because letting go means we are no longer in control. Letting go means Jesus is truly the Lord of our lives. Richard Foster wrote a book called Prayer. And I've shared this with you before. And I want to encourage you, if you haven't ever checked it out, check it out. It's a great book. In the book, he tells a story about surrender. A friend of Foster's asked him to come to her city to teach on the subject of prayer. And he would continue to tell her, no thanks, I'm not going to come, that's just too much. And he said, look, there's people in your city who can teach the same thing. So just you know, ask one of them. He really didn't want to go. But his friend persisted to Mr. Foster to please come and teach the people about prayer. Finally said, okay, look, let's pray about it. He said, don't tell anyone what you're thinking. And if at least six people ask you about this in the next week, then I will come. And Foster admitted, I actually was not trying to hear from God. I was trying to get out of it. And he figured there's no way that six people are going to ask her about this. And so in a few days, he says, uh, she called and said, "Uh, Richard, in the last four days, 12 people have asked me about this. Foster said, I was trapped. (laughs) I had to go. I made a promise. And so I had to go. He said it was a small gathering of about 15 people, and they met in someone's home. And the first night, one of the men asked, he said, please be easy on me because I'm not one of you, which was his way of saying that he wasn't a Christian. And the group was welcoming of him anyway, and they included him just like they included everybody else. Foster said that throughout the weekend, the Spirit of God moved through that group again and again, so much so that by Sunday afternoon on the third day of their retreat, the same man asked the group, would you pray for me that I could know Jesus the way that you all know Jesus? And for a little while, nobody said or did anything. And then one young man stood up and he came and he placed his hands 
on the man's shoulders. And he began to describe a commercial. He began to describe a commercial for sweet tea. Now this was like in the 80s or the 90s. And the scene in the sweet tea commercial was a sweltering hot day in the middle of the summer. And in the commercial, people kept falling backwards into a swimming pool with a thirst quenching smile on their faces. And he invited the man to fall into the arms of Jesus in the same way. Well, the man began to cry and they all watched in wonder as he received the gift of saving faith. And he talked later about how uh, this young man's testimony and prayer and encouragement reminded him of his own baptism from when he was a child. Friends, I want to invite you to hold on to this image in your mind as we talk today and as we go through this week. This is a picture of surrender, falling backwards into a refreshingly cool swimming pool on a sweltering hot day. The disciples of Jesus need to return again and again to the waters of our baptism. Friends, remember your baptism and be thankful. Because here's what we know about baptism and the life of discipleship. After we get out of the swimming pool and get dressed and put on our street clothes and put on our walking shoes and we begin to walk and follow Jesus, it's not long before we come to the Garden of Gethsemane. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prays and there is a prayer of surrender and life gets real and discipleship gets Real. Okay, so Holy Week. Holy Week goes by in kind of a blur. Okay, so Palm Sunday, there's the Palm Parade and the shouts of Hosanna and the children waving palm branches. On Monday, Jesus goes to the temple. And I wonder if you know the story. He flips over the tables of the money changers and he drives them out because they were making a mockery of God's house of prayer. And it was then that the leaders decided again to try to kill Jesus. On Tuesday, Jesus predicted the destruction of the temple. On Wednesday, Jesus was anointed by a woman who had some expensive perfume. On Thursday, Jesus gathered in an upper room with his disciples and they ate the Last Supper and he washed their feet. And then that evening, that night, he took them to a garden called Gethsemane and he prayed with him. And the story goes, I'm going to read from Luke 22. The story goes, Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet, not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. What's the hardest thing you've ever had to do? survive a divorce, finish school, bury someone you love, pay the bills when you don't have a job with any income. Maybe getting through this coronavirus situation ranks right up there with some of the hardest things you've ever had to do. Surely the prayer that Jesus made in the garden was one of his hardest moments. The story says that Jesus, his sweat was like drops of blood. Can you imagine that? He was frustrated with his friends because they kept falling asleep and he was asking them to pray with him that they would not fall into temptation. But 
they fell asleep anyway. You know, maybe, maybe too much grilled lamb chops and red wine. It's easy to fall into temptation of self, isn't it? And so Jesus prays in that moment what probably any of us would pray. Please, Father, is there any other way? Is there any other way that we can accomplish this same thing? Does it have to involve suffering? Uh, does it really require something so costly? I want you to notice something. How amazing is it that Jesus prays for something and he does not get what he asks for? Jesus wants this cup to pass. He wants this cup of suffering to pass. He wants to find some other way to offer salvation to the world. You know, no wonder songwriters and poets have been so insistent that Jesus is acquainted with our struggles. He's prayed the same prayers. He's heard the same answers. And yet, and yet the reason Jesus is Lord and we are not is because he is perfectly able, he is perfectly willing to surrender, to surrender his will to the Father's will. You know, we cry out, my will be done. But Jesus' testimony is, thy will be done. Friends, this is what it looks like to let go. This is what it looks like to relinquish control. This is what it looks like to surrender. I want to leave you today with two words of encouragement. The first is this. If, if you are struggling, if you're struggling with surrendering your life to God's life, you are in exactly the right place. If you are struggling, you are in exactly the right place because the struggle is where it happens. I think sometimes we expect it's supposed to be easy. Friends, it's not easy. It's almost never easy. It wasn't easy for Jesus in the garden. Of course, it's not going to be easy for us. You know, there's no physical fitness without some sweat and hard work, right? There's no mental development without some mental strain. And there's no spiritual growth without spiritual struggle. Those who think it's easy are really kidding themselves. Those who struggle are honest enough to know that our selfishness does not go away quietly, does it? So struggle is evidence of our relationship with God. It means it's kind of a wrestling match, you know, the way Jacob wrestled with the Lord. And so God will wrestle with you. God will invite you to, to let go and to surrender. Friends, the growth happens in the struggle. And so if you are struggling, you are in exactly the right place where you need to be. The last word of encouragement I have for you is this. You're not alone. You are not alone. The prayer of surrender is not something that we do by ourselves or under our own power. The very moment that Jesus knelt down and prayed, Father, not my will, but yours be done. The story says an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. Even the resources of heaven are brought to bear on the needs of people on earth like you and me. God wills his angels to come and to care for you and to strengthen you. Now, of course, Jesus, his suffering is not taken away by the angel, right? But the angel gives him strength to endure it. 
Friends, most of us have never been through anything like this in our lives before. Most of us would never choose anything like our current situation. And I honestly don't believe that God has caused it. But I do know that God can use it. God can use all of this, all of this illness and unemployment and uncertainty. God will use all of this to teach us how to depend on him. Let's close with prayer. This is a prayer from John Wesley. It's known as our Wesleyan Covenant Prayer. It's one of my favorites, and it's a prayer of surrender, of letting Jesus be the Lord of our lives. Let's pray together. Holy God, I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Place me with whom you will. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be put to work for you or set aside for you, praised for you or criticized for you. Let me be full, let me be empty. Let me have all things, let me have nothing. I freely and fully surrender all things to your hope and service. And now, O glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are mine and I am yours. So be it. And the covenant which I have made on earth, let it be made also in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.